Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening. It is my pleasure to introduce your speaker tonight, Professor Alyssa Eppel, who's an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry here at UCSF. Professor Eppel did her undergraduate work at Stanford and then obtained a PhD in clinical psychology from Yale in 1999. In just over a decade, after becoming a newly minted research psychologist, Professor Professor Eppel has achieved remarkable success measured in every imaginable way. She's the recipient of numerous scientific awards, including our most prestigious award in psychology, the APA Distinguished Scientific Award. She's the co-founder and director of the Center for Obesity, a highly sought-after mentor who has launched several successful careers of her mentees, an astounding track record in securing federal grants, a prolific writer, and importantly, as you'll find out tonight, a researcher with the uncanny and often too rare ability to translate her scientific research into important and digestible bits of information for public consumption. She takes seriously the charge of disseminating her work broadly and has appeared on many broadcasts, including but not limited to 60 Minutes, ABC Nightly News, The Today Show, and 2020, to name a few. I could go on describing the many scientific areas in which Professor Eppel has made substantial discoveries, such as in chronic stress, obesity, and depression, but instead, I'll stop talking now so you can hear for yourself about her groundbreaking work in cellular aging. Please join me in welcoming Professor Eppel, who will be talking about emotions, stress, and rate of telomere shortening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wendy. That was such a lovely introduction from uh, one of my very favorite researchers in the world. I'm a fa- I'm, I run her fan club. So... <laughs> Um, how many of you have already heard a lecture about telomeres? You are a very highly educated mini-med school crowd. I knew it. Okay, don't worry. It's going to be different. This is a growing field. There's new findings all the time. So there will be some similarities. You may have heard about some of these findings from Liz Blackburn and others. So tonight, I am going to ask for your full attention. And it's very appropriate this lecture follows... Um, Adam Ghazali's on attention and how hard it is to be suppressing other thoughts and especially if they're stressful thoughts and to not be multitasking while you're trying to listen. Um, And I'm going to challenge you because I'm going to keep reminding you of your own life and what's stressful about it. So it's going to be a very interesting experience. And I'm also going to jump to one of the bottom lines which is that our cells are listening to our thoughts. And every time you see a picture of telomeres, I want that to be the little signal to you to just remember to check in and observe your thoughts and and where they are right when you see that picture. And so you can practice right now where are your thoughts. Some of us may be mind-wandering because that's what we do about half, more than half the time. So I'm going to talk about... uh, the, my favorite measure of, uh, my favorite biomarker measure of cell aging, telomeres, as you know from the title, um, and talk about research looking at stress and different um, psychological processes, different thought content, and how it's a- associated with cell aging and lifestyle. And 
I'm going also at the end talk about gene expression as another example of an area where we're learning just how our cells are listening to what's going on in our brain, our master control center. And then at the end, um, we'll talk about some ways to promote resiliency to biological aging through psychological means. There's our zebra friend. So even the zebra, he really knows stress well and knows that his stripes tend to unravel. And I'm going to show you how our DNA tends to unravel under states of extreme stress. So we can think about different sources of stress in our lives. There are situations we call stressors. And when they're chronic and ongoing, this can really cause a lot of biological wear and tear. And the way that these affect us is they get under the skin by causing us to feel stress, perceive stress, and, and trigger this stress response. And the stress response is very well known. So I'm going to, just going to ask you to uh, yell out some answers. What, is, what do you think of when you think of the stress response? Eating, Eating a response, good response to stress in the short term. Stomach ache. Sighing, so your breathing changes. Sweating, the autonomic nervous system is active. It's interrupting your sleep. You're more vigilant, so it's not time to sleep deeply. Headaches, we're changing blood flow and hemodynamics. Muscle tension. Uh, It can lead to regular heartbeats if we're vulnerable. Feelings of anxiety. I heard someone say fight-flight response, and that's a good way to sum up this systemic physiological response that we know so well, we experience, we're, we're stuck with for life, and it saves our life sometimes. And the, the good news is that we're just hardwired to have this amazingly robust stress response and then recover. But that's not where the story ends. That's the old chapter on stress. And what we're going to talk about tonight is how stress gets into cells. So what is less known is the cellular responses to psychological stress. So somewhere between feeling stressed, having this fight-flight response, this physiological response that leads to disease, in between here is is what our cells are doing, what's happening at the cellular level. So we're just starting to get this amazing picture of how our cells are responding to stress. And I'm only going to be focusing on one or two very specific mechanisms, uh, such as how, how stress ages, prematurely ages our cells. But the bigger picture is that the cell, the little machinery of the cell, is having hundreds and maybe thousands of reactions under stress. And it's a complex dynamic system, so we're never going to fully define and understand it. But we're starting to get these clues about how we age, what causes this malleable rate of biological aging. We might be 70, but we might be biologically 60 or 80. And so there's this elasticity, there's a lot of variance in how we, we age biologically. So this is a little bit of a clue into that. Now, why am I focusing so much on stress? Stress is an extreme example of this wear and tear that our physiological response can uh, have on our cells. So in There have been several studies recently showing that stress is related to earlier morbidity if you perceive a lot of stress. This was an early classic study just showing that caregivers can live as long as controls, um, but if they're distressed caregivers, if they're feeling a lot of psychological strain and burden from caregiving for their 
chronically ill partner, then they tend to die earlier, about 63% earlier over the next five years. So we know stress has some clinical effects, and really what we want to try to do is unpack that more so we can understand it and modulate it. And it's, of course, a big topic of public interest. Soon after Obama was elected, he started turning gray, and you can imagine people went... uh, went crazy asking, are telomeres shortening? Is this a stress response from, from sitting in the White House? And if you look at pictures of Bush, you can see that he really aged a lot in those White House years, too. So is it the telomeres aging? Well, we haven't really looked at hair color, but uh, we've studied the immune system, and we, have, we know a lot about what's aging the immune system prematurely. So let me tell you... Oh, uh, we're going to talk about telomeres next, and before I talk about them... Um, we have been studying them in people for the last 10 years and have had a lot of demands, first from researchers and then the public, to be able to measure their... People want to measure their own telomeres or measure them in large cohorts. So we have started a company. So this is my disclosure. My colleagues and I have a telomere measurement company. So what are telomeres? Telomeres are the caps, DNA-based caps, at the ends of chromosomes that protect the chromosomes from bad things happening in the cell, chemicals like free radicals or from fusions or telomere breaks. Now, what's so interesting about these caps at the end is that they also are like the the, uh, canary in the coal mine. They are very, very sensitive to the environment, to the cellular environment. And so they're the first to get damaged when things go wrong in the cell. So when there's free radicals or oxidative stress in the cell, the telomere starts getting damaged much uh, earlier before the genetic, the genes here, the actual encoding genes uh, gets touched. So what happens when the telomeres damage? It sends DNA damage signals, and uh, the cell can become senescent and stop dividing. And the, the, pro- the big problem with that is that we need our dividing cells, like our immune cells and the lining of our cardiovascular system, to divide for decades and decades. If we want to live to 100, we need to replenish cells. And once they get to a terminal state when they're senescent and can't divide, then we have aged tissue that's vulnerable to disease. It's also inflamed tissue because these senescent cells start secreting cytokines. And so we now we know, know that inflammation is a big part of aging, in particular immune system and other tissue aging. So we don't want senescent cells. In fact, there's a recent study showing that if you uh, take senescent cells out of a rat, you can actually extend its life. So these senescent cells don't just stop doing their job. They actually do harm to physiology. Uh, You can think of a telomere as kind of the aglet at the end of the shoelace. Liz Blackburn, who helped discover uh, the genetic code for telomeres and the enzyme telomerase that protects telomeres, um, talks about them as these aglets that once this gets all w- frayed, you can have a catastrophic event for the cell. Whenever you see this shoelace, that's your cue. Check in and see where your thoughts are. <laughs> we know that telomeres are associated with chronic diseases of aging across the spectrum, it appears. So they're not a very specific marker of any type of disease, but they make us vulnerable to disease. They also predict, they tend to predict mortality in some studies, but also healthy lifespan. So they predict living longer without disease. So they tend to be kind of an indicator of, of um, healthy aging. That's how we think about them. 
So about, uh, I guess, 10 years ago now, we did our first study in humans when I came to UCSF as a postdoc, and I was fortunate to collaborate with Elizabeth Blackburn and Zhu Lin, who was her postdoc back then. And we wanted to know if extreme chronic stress for years and years was associated with telomere shortening. So to examine this, we chose a sample that we know is under extreme stress, and that is caregivers. And caregivers, there are many types of caregivers, people caring for a family member with a chronic condition like dementia. In this case, we wanted to study healthy young people with no disease yet, so we chose mothers of children with a chronic condition. And we know that they tend to have more depression and other um, symptoms of early disease. So we recruited a very healthy sample of moms who had children with a diagnosis and then moms of children without a diagnosis. And what we found in this first study was that chronicity does matter. So the years of being a caregiver was associated with shorter telomere length. You can see that uh, people who were only caregiving for two to four years had a whole range of telomeres, but the people who had been caregiving for a decade tended to be on the short end. So this finding has been replicated in different states of chronic severe distress. For example... Um, Keycolt Glazer and colleagues looked at elderly people, controls, and people who had a spouse with dementia. And they found that the caregivers did have shorter telomeres. This has been found in other states of distress like psychiatric disorders, anxiety disorders, major depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. And also in people, healthy people without a current diagnosis, but who have been exposed to adversity in their childhood. One of the themes you're going to hear tonight is for most of the biomarkers I'm talking about, we find that it's not just adult stress that's linked to poor functioning, but really it's factors in the early environment like exposure to trauma that appear to matter and maybe even be more important for our adult health. So in this case, you can see that people who who are exposed to child maltreatment, emotional neglect, had shorter telomeres. That's been found several times since the study. We did a study here with Tom Nyland and Aoife O'Donovan looking at people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so while people with this anxiety disorder did tend to be on the short end on telomeres, when we looked at childhood trauma, we found that that explained the short telomeres even more than the current diagnosis. So you can see that people who had had four or five exposures to a traumatic event when they were young tended to have shorter telomeres, and then controlling for this made uh, the PTSD finding go away. So that tells us that really what's underlying this difference may be due to early childhood exposures. And the story goes back even further than childhood. We now know that adult health is in part determined by our development in the womb, this what we call prenatal programming. And so we, of course, know that mom's, pregnant mom's nutrition matters, but her psychological state matters too. In a study by um, our colleagues at UC Irvine, Sonia Entringer and Patik Wadwa, they did a beautiful study where they had a group of healthy young adults, and they had them interview their mothers about how stressed they were when they were pregnant, and not asking about, you know, how did you feel back then, because that would be hard to remember, but rather... Did you have any major life events happen, like did someone die or did you get divorced? And what they found was that 
even though all the adults were healthy and non-depressed, the moms who had a, uh, prenatal stress had offspring who had shorter telomeres as adults. So the comparison group had longer telomeres. And actually, just, I think, today, a study came out in chickens that found the same thing. So they stressed out the mom, pregnant mom chickens, and they found that the chicks that came out of the stressed moms had more oxidative stress, more free radicals, more cortisol, so they had more stress hormones, and they had shorter telomeres. So they're coming out different with a disadvantage that might even last for life in terms of their ability for their immune cells to divide. Uh, Owen Wolkowitz at UCSF has been looking at people with major depression, and he's found that chronicity of depression matters. So people who have been depressed for more than, say, seven years, when you kind of add up all the days of depression across a lifetime, which can get quite high because depression is a chronic recurrent disorder. So people with maybe one episode of depression didn't have shorter telomeres, but down out here, people who had years and years of depression tended to have shorter telomeres. We find that with many, many conditions. Janice Humphreys, who's in the nursing school here, looked at... Uh, women exposed to domestic violence and found a chronicity effect. The longer they had lived with an abusive partner, the shorter their telomeres. So one question is, what is underlying, what's common to all of these states of stress, severe stress? Clearly this biological stress response might be common to these different psychological disorders and anxiety disorders. But what about psychologically? What are aspects of our thinking that might be causing the stress response that are common? So um, in this, uh, our group of colleagues have kind of tried to lump um, aspects of how we think under stress together into positive stress and negative stress. And you can see that threat appraisals, feeling like your ego is threatened uh, and that you can't cope, and also ruminative thoughts, so the process of thinking the same negative thoughts over and over, rehashing and reliving negative things, these can both arouse the stress response and keep it high. So these are, in a sense, what we operationalize as chronic stress. So chronic stress is not something that happens to us, it's what we carry around in our head long after the event has happened, or a, a propensity to interpret things as more dangerous than they really are. So that's the um, what we call seeing red. And you might think of this as a short way to um, remember these kind of stress cognitions or the way, you know, the way we carry chronic stress in our head is think of it as R&R. So what do we think of as R&R? Is it recreation and relaxation? Or is it seeing red and rumination? I would argue that our, our American pastime is more the latter, that type of R&R, that we're often you know, in a state of of hypervigilance and arousal, especially with our modernization and kind of the kind of constant vigilance we need um, with technology and demands hitting us through email, et cetera. So there's our stress box, and that would lead to higher stress arousal, uh, cortisol and insulin, which together can cause kind of a transient pre-diabetic state, and oxidative stress or free radicals. What's in the positive box? Well, one thing that can rein in the stress response when we're under stress is observing our thoughts. So you're just checking into your thoughts is you're, you becoming an observer and having metacognition. So you're asking, what's the content here? Feeling control and feeling challenge appraisals that you can cope well with stress is going to cause a different physiological response, um, one that's more uh, resilient to um, 
to aging. It doesn't cause, you know, the, the wear and tear that this stress arousal does. So high, high anabolic hormones and high vagal tone might be more characteristic of these positive states of arousal. And actually, Wendy is a pioneer in this in measuring the fine-tuned aspects of arousal and threat and challenge. Mindfulness, we'll talk about at the end, is one very important uh, skill that people can learn. Some people have more metacognition naturally, but mindfulness can be... Um, the awareness of one's thoughts can be trained through mindfulness, and this should inhibit these stress arousal cognitions and turn on this more positive stress response so that more, we're more reflective instead of just hotly reacting to things. So I'm just going to show you some data from a study we finished on our um, postmenopausal women, healthy women from the Bay Area, half were caring for a partner with dementia, and we expose them to a stressor in the lab. This is a really useful tool because everyone is exposed to the exact same situation, which is simply two people looking at them saying, you know, do this math problem and, and give me a five-minute speech. So it's the exact same stimuli. But people respond very differently. So it gets very interesting. You see some people feel very threatened. They feel ashamed. They blame themselves. Their cortisol goes way up. Other people have more of this resilient response where they might feel that they, they can handle the situation and they feel more positively challenged by it. So we measure threat and challenge. Uh, and actually, I uh, Use Wendy measures it very well, so I use Wendy's measures. We measure demands and resources. So if people are high in demands and low in resources, they're feeling more threat. And conversely, if you feel like you have a lot of resources, meaning the ability to do the task or friends to call on to help you, and low demands, you feel more challenged. So we measure this threat and challenge, and here's uh, in Moffitt Hospital where we set up our camera and we have someone sit here and we measure their cell aging while they're... Um, doing these tasks. We look at immediate changes, just in case it can change quickly. And what we find, we measure the emotions and thoughts that people have. So we measure how threatened they feel, how challenged they feel. And it's amazing. People know what they feel because this maps onto physiology pretty well. And in this study, we, just, we really wanted to ask, does this map onto their rate of cellular aging? So we think that we all carry around with us some tendency to react with threat. And is that tendency um, to react through daily life related to our cellular aging? So we looked at telomere length and whole blood. And indeed, we found that people with long telomeres tended to have very little threat when they were told about the task. So right before the task, they felt like they could cope with it well. In contrast, the people with short telomeres had, uh, even before they started the task, felt much more threatened by the task. So we think that these little snapshot feelings we have when we're about to confront a situation are probably very habitual and ingrained, and we carry that with us, and that is shaping the length of our telomeres. I also mentioned rumination once the event happens, events usually are end, and we're not constantly dealing with stressors. They might be frequent, but they're, but they're not going on and on and on. What's going on and on are our thoughts. So there's, some people tend to ruminate more than others and think negative things. So we measure in the 30 minutes after the task how much are people still thinking about how badly they did. Everyone does badly on this task. And um, thinking thoughts of um, brooding about it and feeling like... They, uh, 
they're worthless. So a lot of kind of negative thoughts about their performance and what we found, and not being able to concentrate or do well. So we found that the people who did ruminate more after this little lab test did also have shorter telomeres and also lower telomerase. So these little snapshots of stress cognition, the process of coping with stress, are indeed important and tied to our telomeres. So that's one aspect of stress that we think we can measure and it can help explain chronic stress. There are many different types of stress and emotional responses. And I'm going to mention another one, which is, um, which is feeling socially evaluated and or rejected. So negative feelings about the self. And this has been studied in, in different ways. Um, in this study, the researchers divided up stressful events and looked at how uh, much depression there was after these events. And what you can see here is that common losses and death um, or even breaking up with someone was related to somewhat higher risk for depression. But look at this. When you look at if someone broke up with you, instead of you breaking up with them, you see this tremendous increase in depression. So this is one of the most painful types of stress. This is what we you know, kind of label in the box of rejection stress or um, targeted rejection. And so when we are stressed by something, we can have different responses. And some of the responses might be, oh, it was them or it's the situation. I'll do better next time. Another type of response is, it's me. I'm worthless. I'm not good enough. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I feel humiliated. That is a self-conscious negative emotional response. And that's the type of response we think is really um, important in terms of turning on the, the harmful stress response and keeping it on for a long time. And here's a model by um, former postdoc George Slavish and Ifo Donovan that you can see that social rejection in particular is this type of stress that can lead to a cascade of physiological events that ends up with immune cell aging. So particularly self-conscious emotions leads to a different neural response in the brain, activates the autonomic nervous system and the HPA axis or the one of the important hormonal nervous systems. And this can affect the immune system, leading to inflammation, causing the glucocorticoid receptors to be uh, more resistant, kind of turn off and not be sensitive, which is a big problem, and can cause telomere shortening. And major depression. So major depression and chronic stress are good friends. Depression is just right around the corner from chronic stress. In our caregiver studies, we find a tremendous amount of depression. So what have... I told you so far. We know that chronic stress, anxiety, depression, and trauma exposure are all associated with this measure of cellular aging. And these uh, kinds of conditions have these stress cognitions in common. People with these conditions tend to have exaggerated R&R. They tend to see threat in, an exaggerate threat in places where other people feel safe, and they also tend to carry these negative thoughts with them. So the, these are aspects that we think are chronic stress, in a sense, in our head. And then how does chronic stress get under the skin? Well, if you think of our cells, they're extremely sensitive. They have receptors for all of the messengers of stress. We're just hardwired to be detecting danger, either threats to um, our survival or to getting enough food. So we have this whole intricate chemical messenger system that these turn on, and our immune cells are picking up those, those messages very efficiently, very well. And so stress is absolutely you know, tied to, uh, is 
communicated to the cells through these receptors. Some of the messengers that we know about that affect the telomeres inside our cells, um, I've laid this pathway out. Stress perception can trigger cortisol and insulin, and these, we know that these immune cells have receptors for cortisol and insulin, and high cortisol and high insulin are linked to telomere shortening. But these, this combination also packs in visceral fat. When we have a lot of visceral fat, that creates more inflammation in the blood and more free radicals. So we have this whole system, both directly from hormones and indirectly from fat, that's impacting our telomeres. So we know some of the, the what I call, factors that make up stress soup um, that, that changes our blood chemistry also affect telomeres. Recently, there was a very interesting set of papers from... Uh, a group at Harvard, Ron DePino's group, that asked the question of what's happening inside the cell when the telomeres get too short. We know the cell can't divide, and it's becoming senescent, but what's the actual chemical pathway? So they mapped that out so they could look at all the cell signaling that's going on and wanted to know why is it in that these cells with short telomeres cause whole body disease. So they looked at all sorts of different cells in the body, not just immune cells, in these rats, and they caused um, low telomerase in these rats. And what they found is that these cells with short telomeres go into a crisis and impair the mitochondria, the the, uh, little machines that create energy. And we need these mitochondria to be really efficient and last for decades and decades. But if they wear out too early, they start leaking free radicals or reactive oxygen species, and the cell becomes filled with oxidative stress. So telomere shortness causes a whole series of chemical messengers to also then damage the mitochondria. So now we know at a cellular level what this uh, short telomere syndrome is really caused by. So that's all a little bit depressing. Um, But here's the good news. Telomere shortening, although it's part of our DNA, is the only malleable part. So telomere shortness is shaped by our lifestyle. We, think we, know, we, know, we know that it's shaped by certain things we can't control, like our mom's stress when we were in utero, but we also know that it's shaped by our decisions that we make every day, like what we eat and how we exercise. And uh, when we think about lifestyle... We often think about just a list of things we should be doing. We should be exercising and eating well and reducing stress, um, getting enough sleep. And yes, all of those things are associated with telomere length, but I want to introduce a potentially more helpful way of thinking about that list. And that is to think of stress as not just one thing to be managing, but as an organizing principle for your daily life as the house that actually shapes everything in it. So when we're stressed, everything changes. Our health behaviors change. Our brain makes us crave high-fat, dense food. We usually feel sedentary. We, our sleep is affected. So all of the health behaviors are moving around because of stress. So stress is this higher-level factor. So in this house of Someone with high stress, you can see that they're having insomnia. That's one big eye. You can see that they're sitting on their couch watching TV, couch potato. And they're, what do they choose to eat in this kitchen full of food? It's the chips or the donuts. So uh, 
we can change, you know, one lifestyle thing, but what is a powerful node in the whole system of our network of health behaviors? Stress is one of those powerful nodes that if you change that, you can have cascading effects on multiple aspects of life. So here's the good news. All of these things are linked to more healthy telomeres. So being lean and being insulin sensitive is related to, to healthier, longer telomeres than being obese or having diabetes or prediabetes. Being active is related to longer telomeres. Better quality sleep, having more omega free fatty acids in your blood, and eating a diet that's higher in uh, vitamins and antioxidants. And multivitamins have also been linked to telomere length. That doesn't mean it's causal, of course. We know from lots of vitamin trials now that certain people take vitamins, and it's not necessarily the vitamins that make them look, their biomarkers look more healthy. Um, this is a study by our postdoc, Eric Prather. This is the first study to link sleep to telomere length. And where's the action? Those lucky, very good sleepers, they have the longer telomeres. Eli Putterman, who's also here at UCSF, looked at exercise. Now, exercise had already been looked at, and we know that people with more vigorous activity have longer telomeres. What he did is he took our, um, our healthy women and divided them up into sedentary and active and they were all under high stress. They were, they were dementia caregivers. And what he found was that the, in the active women, it didn't matter if they were high stress or low stress. There's really no significant difference here if they were active. They were doing at least about 10 minutes of vigorous activity a day. But in the sedentary women, here's where you see the effects of stress. So this is quite interesting because it suggests that not just that exercise is good for us because we already know that. And that's not very motivating. But that if you are under chronic stress, exercise is essential. It's much more important because it's actually protecting your body from that stress soup, from that whole biochemical mixture of those factors like free radicals. So you can see this dramatic difference that inactive high-stress women have much shorter telomeres than the active high-stress women. So lifestyle is important. And so is, as we've talked about, our thoughts and the content of our thoughts. So we've been very, gotten very interested recently in not just stressful thoughts, but where our attention is. There was a really cute study that um, Wendy helped with at Harvard that was this iPhone study looking at happiness and what predicts happiness in very large amounts of people who will uh, download this app. And so they asked them, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing right now? You can see that's common, about half the time. And then they asked, well, what was the best predictor of feeling happy? And you can see that when people are not mind-wandering, they're most happy. And when they're doing unpleasant mind-wandering, they're least happy. So mind-wandering, independent of depression, is an important predictor of our well-being. And I love their bottom line, which is that a human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Well, that's what we do. That In our untrained minds, in our daily life, in our busy multitasking, we mind wander. So it would take effort not to mind wander. And, of course, meditation is one way to train us to be focused on the moment. But we all have our natural tendencies. So we started to measure those natural tendencies. In this study, we wanted to look at mind-wandering and many other psychological factors. And uh, we were very lucky that the Chronicle was interested um, in telling the um, women of the Bay Area about our study. So 
they, this was on the front page of the Chronicle, looking to learn what telomeres tell. This was the first study where we measured telomeres and we let people know what their telomere length was. Um, but we first measured all sorts of aspects of their lifestyle and their well-being, and maybe even some people in this room were, were in that study. We examined 250 women, and they were, I just want to point out, this was not a representative sample of the population by any means. So the results I'm going to tell you about may only apply to Bay Area women who responded to our ad who tended to be extremely highly educated. Half of them had a graduate degree. We asked, what are the correlates of telomere lengths? We put in the usual suspects, all our measures of distress and gloom and doom, and we also asked about mind-wandering. We asked two questions. One is presence. How often in the past week have you had moments when you felt totally focused or engaged on what you're doing in the moment? So people self-reported that. About half of them felt uh, engaged, um, at least frequently. And we also asked about negative mind-wandering. How often have you had moments where you felt you didn't want to be where where you are or doing what you're doing? And then we tested whether these responses were associated with telomere length. And what we found was that, first of all, presence and mind-wandering are somewhat independent. We do lots of each of them, and there's only a mild negative correlation. So people could score high on both or low on both. And then we measured all sorts of other things, stress, depression, rumination, satisfaction, and other measures of, of mindfulness. It's hard to measure mindfulness. These are getting at different aspects. And then the two questions I showed you, presence and mind-wandering. So what did we find? When we looked at all of our measures, we found that in this high-functioning, healthy sample, low in distress, none of these psychological measures mattered, as they do in all our other studies. So surprisingly, they just were barely related to telomere length, nothing significant. The only two items that were significant were presence and mind-wandering. So presence was related to longer telomeres, and mind-wandering was related to shorter telomeres. And then when we made this composite of your tendency, you know, the different score, your tendency to be present versus mind-wandering, of course, that was related to even more strongly. So you can see that people who had a very low tendency to mind-wander, who tended to be more present than uh, negative, than do negative mind-wandering, they had the longest telomere length. So this was really interesting, and of course we need to replicate this and see if it applies to mind-wandering when we kind of measure it in a better way in the moment. But we did find that this was a pretty robust effect. It wasn't explained away by stress. I'm just going to show you, just to demonstrate this since we were so excited by this, and Wendy was a big part of this finding. Here's Sally. Sally on two different days. Now, Sally noticing what's in front of her. On a good day, Sally is right where she's at at the moment. She's thinking about what she's doing. She's focused and engaged, and that feels good, and she's, she's very present. Now, what about Sally on a, on a more, maybe more stressful day or a day when she's more distracted? She doesn't even notice what's in front of her. She's thinking about her iPhone, lunch, work, deadlines, So there's mind-wandering Sally and present Sally. And what we think is happening is that present Sally is living in a different biochemical environment than mind-wandering Sally. Mind-wandering Sally may, over decades of life, develop shorter telomeres. 
So what can we really take away from this? Are we this fried kitty or are we puss in boots? <laughs> so stress is really in our mind and our body. Stress becomes chronic with our thoughts, with lots of R&R. Exercise can protect us from this biochemical effects of stress. And besides all these effects on chronic stress and depression and psychiatric disorders, we also think that cell aging might be associated with our state of mind, how present we are. We really want to try to manipulate stress and mind-wandering with interventions. And I don't have any answers for you today, but that would be the only way to really tell if these correlational findings are causal. Um, And I can tell you there's no strong evidence yet that mindfulness training can slow the aging process, but boy, are we examining this in lots of different studies and ongoing trials. We also know from all those studies on early trauma and stress in the womb that these effects we look at and measure in adults may not be about adulthood as much as about early development and the trajectory that early experiences set us on. So aging trajectories start very early in life, and building resiliency is clearly important, even uh, when we're older. So I'm going to uh, jump to a second very interesting biomarker. But before I do that, I wanted to check in and see if there are any questions about the cell aging part. The question is, um, we know that certain people are at greater risk of depression from early trauma or life events when they're adults. And that is, um, that is best measured by what we call the depression gene or the you know, risky allele, which is the serotonin transporter allele. And some of us are born with uh, a very long allele or very short allele or two longs and two shorts. So they're different combinations. But it turns out that having a short allele, or particularly two, is a risk factor for depression, for stress-induced depression. And we have not examined that in these days. We've started to, so we're genotyping people now. And it wouldn't be surprising if that having uh, that genotype, that risky genotype, was also a predictor of telomere shortness because it does link to HPA axis reactivity. So the question is, what about that, all those biochemical stressors and And when they all work together, high insulin, cortisol, free radicals, um, why is that depressing? Is that leading to cancer or other diseases? That's exactly the idea. And there are animal studies or experimental studies where they're actually manipulating stress hormones and finding that they are causing um, the, the cascade of events to worsen cancer. So... Cancer is one of the um, models that's harder to study in humans, but there's some animal models that do suggest that there's, there, is a, you know, there is a stress pathway there that involves um, the autonomic nervous system. Yes. So the question is, if you're having bad sleep and you, t- you get some help with a sleeping pill, is that, does that count? Um, and um, I, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but I'm going to say that's better to take it than not if you're, you know, in the short run as you're going through. You don't want to have too many nights of terrible sleep if you're going through something traumatic. Um, it is, there are behavioral techniques to try as well, but in general, there's always a trade off with a drug. Like if you have high blood pressure and you're taking a drug, you, you 
you might think, like my father, you don't have high blood pressure anymore. But if he stops the drug, it comes back. So, you know, it's fixing some things, but not everything. There's still a, kind of a overdrive going on in one system. We don't know much about different drug effects on telomeres. Our best guesses are that statins, which are really good for reducing inflammation and oxidation, are probably really good for telomeres. And probably estrogen replacement therapy, which not many women are on anymore, that we found just in our little bit of poking around in data, it's associated with higher telomerase. So it's probably protecting telomeres. Um, Antidepressants are probably protective as well, because in some of them, like SSRIs, are normalizing the stress response and lowering cortisol. So let me tell you really quickly about gene expression. So another way that our cells are listening to what's going on in our head is that is through gene expression. Now, we're born with genes. We can't change them. But the gene expression, the output of the genes, is absolutely modifiable. And so what happens from gene to health is a whole transcription pathway where there's these chemical messengers, transcription factors, that bind to the DNA and turn it on or off. And so they determine whether a protein is created or not. They are driving what our body is made up of, which proteins are being created. And some of these chemical messengers are, of course, stress hormones, the same messengers that go crazy when we are feeling socially threatened. Uh, So the DNA sequence is transcribed to an RNA. The RNA then through the ribosome is transcribed to a protein, and there you go. That's how we make up the proteins in our body. So these these messengers are very important, these chemical messengers. And... uh, A group of researchers, um, led by Steve Cole, have started to look at this gene expression profile to see if it's linked to our states of distress. And the idea is simply that we know that chronic stress can cause cells to be really resistant to cortisol. The receptor turns off and doesn't really listen to the cortisol. So does that mean that the, if you look at the DNA, that the DNA, the genes that are turned on by cortisol are not going to be expressed as much? And when cortisol signal doesn't get through, inflammation can go haywire because cortisol and inflammation are antagonistic. So their hypothesis was that highly stressed groups will have a higher expression of genes with transcripts bearing response elements for inflammatory factors, uh, NF-kappa-B, and a muted or lower expression of genes that are turned on by cortisol or glucocorticoids. So what did they find in one of their first studies? They looked at caregivers, and indeed they find that the controls have much higher expression of glucocorticoid-mediated genes, and the Um, caregivers have much higher expression of genes that are turned on by inflammation or NF-kappa-B. So it does fit this pattern. And this has been replicated in many different states besides caregiving, loneliness, low low socioeconomic status. um, And we've seen a similar pattern in our dementia caregivers. So states of chronic stress are causing different proteins to be created in our body. So this is just yet another way, but a very important big way that our cells are listening. This uh, study on low uh, social economic status was very interesting. Edith Chen and colleagues wanted to know why these children with low SES had a different gene expression profile. So they started to look at the psychological variables to see, well, what could explain this? Well, it turns out that for children of low SES, there's a lot of different factors that go into their environment. And one is there tends to be lower maternal warmth. 
And so that factor, lower maternal warmth, was particularly responsible for this more gene expression in this um, stress hormone pathway, this catecholamine-mediated pathway. Someone asked about cancer. Uh, Susan Lutendorf and colleagues have looked at women with ovarian cancer. And instead of just looking at what's happening in the blood cells, which is the case for almost everything I've talked about, they actually looked at what's happening in the tumor. So they, they, uh, when these women had surgery, they took the ovarian tumors and they looked at gene expression in the tumor. And they found that the women who were very high risk, they were... They had more social isolation and depression, so they had very low social support. Their their, uh, gene expression patterns were very different, and uh, you can see that for the high-risk women, they had much higher expression of uh, genes that are triggered or turned on by inflammatory pathways and other stress hormone pathways. So that's just another example. So I, I don't overly focus on telomeres, which is my favorite topic. So the next uh, la- and last topic is can we really alter cell aging? Can we slow our cell aging by turning on telomerase? Telomerase is this enzyme, a very dynamic enzyme that can go up and down and that protects telomeres. It sits on the ends of uh, the telomeres, and it can actually lengthen them by adding back base pairs. So we asked two questions in, in these initial intervention studies, does the group getting the classes, the stress reduction classes, or in this, uh, in this case, I'm going to tell you about the antidepressant, do, you, do we see that exposure to the intervention is associated with better telomerase, higher telomerase, or longer telomeres? And then do people who have a bigger dose of the intervention do better in terms of their cell aging? So Owen Wilkowitz here at UCSF um, took a group of depressed people and put them on an antidepressant, an SSRI, and found that the, more, the antidepressant caused telomerase to go up, and the more it went up, the more their depression remitted. So he finds this correlation with increases in telomerase and decreases in major depression. So if that, that was a very small sample, as you can see, but if that's true, that could be very significant. Telomerase activity could be one of the mechanisms of how antidepressants work particularly in the brain. We weren't able to look in the brain. We were just looking in the blood cells. Uh, some of you know our local Dean Ornish, who has written many books about this very low-fat diet and lifestyle that has actually reversed heart disease. So he tested his um, Ornish program in men with prostate cancer and found that over three... And he looked at telomerase activity before and after, and he found that over three months of his programs, telomerase activity did go up significantly in these men with prostate cancer. And this didn't have a control group in this study, so it's very preliminary. But, you want, but we want to know if the people who did better in his intervention actually had more of an increase in telomerase. So we looked at people's levels of stress, and we found that the more their stress went down, the higher their telomerase. Um, mindfulness, of course, is of interest because it's a skill that can dampen down all those threat responses and the rumination of chronic stress. So mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So being more compassionate about your thoughts and not critical of them. Um, in one of the first meditation studies on cell aging, um, our colleagues at UC Davis, Cliff Sarin, Tonya Jacobs, they looked at a, uh, they enrolled people in a three-month meditation program, and they had a weightless control group. And they looked at telomerase after the intervention. So it wasn't a perfect study. Again, these are all preliminary studies. And they wanted to know 
if uh, mindfulness and increases in purpose in life were related to telomerase activity. And as mediators, they looked at control and neuroticism. So they wanted neuroticism to go down and control to go up. Of course, they found that after three months of daily meditation, they, uh, they, they did find these psychological changes. So the treatment group went up in control and down in neuroticism and up in purpose in life. And the weightless control group didn't have much change. So then they looked at telomerase activity, and they found that the retreat group did have higher telomerase after the meditation intervention. And more importantly, it was correlated with the increases in well-being. So, for example, the more people, the retreat group went up in feeling more purpose in life, the higher their telomerase was. So, again, these are just hints that suggest that increases in well-being might be bolstering this cell aging system. Uh, Jennifer Dobbin-Mir at UCSF um, worked on a study, developed a really nice intervention that worked on two fronts, mindfulness for stress reduction and also mindfulness for um, emotional eating or stress eating. So using the same skill of paying attention to the present moment to improve emotion regulation, we were able to improve stress eating and reduce stress arousal. And we also looked at cell aging in the study, and her paper just came out. And what she found was that across all the women, weightless and treatment group, um, there were patterns suggesting that lifestyle is moving around with telomerase. So across everyone, we find that people who went down in anxiety and chronic stress tended to go up in telomerase. This is the weightless control group. Things happen in weightless control groups that we don't expect. Um, There was also kind of a metabolic component. So people who went down in the amount of kind of brittle, restrained eating also went up in telomerase, and that was actually mediated through fat. So they were actually eating... uh, less fat, and that is probably um, responsible for that increase in telomerase. And then their cortisol and glucose were also moving in healthy ways with telomerase. So decreases in cortisol and, and glucose were associated with increases in telomerase. So again, it's just a hint. It's, a cor- you know, it's correlational, but it does suggest that the cell aging system is malleable with our lifestyle. And I want to end with a slide from my colleague, Judy Moskowitz, who's here at UCSF, who studies... She gave up on studying stress and decided to go for the positive. So in her interventions, instead of just focusing on let's try to manage your uh, stress level and cognitions, she's short-circuiting that and going right to let's increase the positive aspects of your life and the positive emotion. And there are many ways to do that. So here is a menu of eight different ways that have been shown to increase positive emotion um, empirically through research. And there's no um, one that's better than the other. It's just a menu. And I suggest that you choose one of these and try it. And one of my favorites is just um, one and two that kind of go together. So we often, we just have a great memory for anything bad that happened. So when I ask you about your day, you might remember anything that went wrong. But it takes some work to think about what went right, what was positive about your day. Even small things like I really enjoyed my coffee this morning with a friend, just a little event that maybe was in even 10 minutes of your day, these are the important things to notice because otherwise they go unnoticed. And when you notice them, you maximize them and you feel more positive affect. And then when you tell someone about it, that's called capitalizing, you experience it again and they experience it and you bring a smile to them. And that's also called savoring. So you're reliving it and getting another burst of positive affect. So this is something that's easy to do 
and it's important, and it's like it can really shift your your affect balance in a sense. Um, so I'm going to end with asking you where your mind is right now and to think of your telomeres when you think of your thoughts. This is a book that's all about aging and stress in case you're interested in further reading. And I want to acknowledge uh, my many wonderful collaborators who have done um, important parts of the research I presented. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.